Holy Gospel according to John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter the second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Gospel of the Lord. This one starts out a little dry, but I beg you, hang in there with me. The Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican, otherwise known as Vatican II, consisted of four sessions between 1962 and 1965. There will be a test at the end of this sermon, so please pay attention. This council produced many documents and statements and decrees, including a three-year rotation of scripture readings. This gave birth to the revised Common Lectionary in 1992, which gives each of the main Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their own liturgical year, and gives John, most of the time, main church festivals such as Christmas and Easter. This three-year rotation of scripture readings was formulated to unite the Christian church around the globe, regardless of language or culture or denomination. So in other words, broadly speaking, if you worship at a Christian church in South America or Australia on a Sunday morning, you'll likely be hearing the same scripture readings that you would hear at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in Iowa City. So why do we care? That's the question. We're Lutherans after all. And no matter how progressive and open-minded we might be, we still tense at the thought that the Vatican might impact how we worship. But it does. The revised common lectionary, born out of Vatican II and adopted by the Lutheran Church, dictates what is heard and preached during this three-year rotation of scripture. 
So who made these selections? The answer to this will not surprise you. Present were the popes who convened and closed the council, as well as thousands of church fathers, each of whom was entitled to bring a theologian or other expert of his choice. Senior members of other Christian denominations, like the Lutheran Church, were invited to observe, as well as select sisters from the Roman Catholic Church. Neither of these last two categories were allowed to vote. Of course, I told you you would not be surprised. In doing so, by deciding which texts were to be included in this rotation and which were to be left out, the council took control of the popular narrative of the Bible. That is to say, which stories steer and shape how the Bible and God are popularly understood. The lectionary was shaped by the image of a victorious God and God's people on one hand, and conquered peoples and their gods on the other hand. Ones with power determine the popular narrative of history, religion, culture. When this happens, though, essential stuff gets left out. My eldest son recently took a class during his January term at Luther College called History and Memory. The class engaged the question, who gets to decide how history is recorded? It's the heroes, the victors, the conquerors who record history. Popular narrative is shaped by winners. As a result, we are subconsciously trained to look for heroes and villains, assigning races, colors, genders, and sexual orientations to each. In this way, according to this narrative, life is simple. Black villains and white heroes. But simple does not mean accurate. For example, Doug and I went to the Truthsgiving program sponsored by the Englert Theater last November. Peoples from five indigenous nations were present and they said, you know that story about pilgrims and Indians sitting down for a feast together to celebrate a bountiful harvest? Well, you know that's a story only white people tell to justify manifest destiny. And while I was angry because this messes with my favorite holiday and its food, I knew it to be true. We tell that story to make ourselves feel better, even knowing it is a false narrative. Even though I adore turkey and pumpkin pie, I know deep down the popular narrative of a joint pilgrim and Indian potluck is an untruth. And you know it too. The popular biblical narrative highlights God's victorious arm and the people who do God's bidding in defeating, eliminating, or conquering both those who get in God's way as well as the godless heathen who are trampled underfoot. This is even articulated in some beloved Christian hymns, such as Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, which is actually a battle song written for Union troops in the Civil War. Our reading today from Genesis is a great example of the popular biblical narrative's need to have a winner and a loser. In the few short verses from Genesis 12, 1 through 4, an awful lot happens. God calls Abram to get up and travel a great distance to the foreign land of Canaan. God promises to make of Abram a great nation, christened with infinite blessings, as well as protection from those who curse him. 
while a slightly longer reading from this passage, verses 1 through 9, appears later this year, the 20 verses of this entire story never, ever, ever show up in the three-year rotation of Scripture. Why? Because the Council of Cardinals and Bishops of Vatican II decided the whole story should not be included. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. Why? Because in the full story, Abram, to whom God establishes the eternal covenant to be the God of Abram's descendants, the children of Israel, passes off his wife Sarai as his sister in order to spare his own life, delivering her into the hands of Pharaoh to use as his plaything. And she never even gets to say a word. In fact, Sarai is not even named in today's scripture. She's mentioned by name only once in the slightly longer reading later this year, so we never get to hear the whole story in church, much less her side of it, which includes only her name, but never ever her voice, barely named, and without voice, she is dominated and conquered. Her body is traded as property, strongly resonant with any of us of the hashtag MeToo generation, the sacrifice of her body and her role in fulfilling the promise God made to Abram are an afterthought. Her identity usually couched in what she lacks. She is barren. She is without child until God opens her womb, at which time she finally achieves full worth and value in her ancient patriarchal world. In fact, Sarai doesn't even speak a single word until four long chapters later when, in her desperation to conceive, she begs her slave Hagar to bear a child for her. When Hagar conceives, she resents Sarai, and when Sarai begs Abram for help, he tells her, you know, that's your problem, not mine. Sarai's popular narrative is told through the lens of patriarchs with power, making her little else than a necessary accessory to Abram and merely the means through which God's promises are fulfilled. In other words, while Abram gets the accolades of being faithful and righteous, even though he makes mistakes, Sarai is valued only when her uterus functions. Abram is the father of many nations, and Sarai, well, she's his trusty sidekick with working ovaries, a baby machine. According to the popular biblical narrative's necessity that there be a winner and a loser, Sarai is not the only one who gets the short end of the stick. God commands Abram to go to the land of Canaan, promising Abram that he will inhabit that land, which is already inhabited by Canaanites. This makes us North Americans squirm, at least it should, because we have also participated in a history of inhabiting a land that was already occupied. The Israelites' dream is about to become the Canaanites' nightmare, according to popular biblical narrative. The narrative emphasizes God's promise that, Canaanite, that Canaan's inhabitants will not only become slaves, but they will actually be totally destroyed. While historical scholars have shown that it is highly likely 
that the Israelites moved into Canaan and assimilated into their culture peaceably. The popular narrative needs a hero and a villain, a victor and a victim. And so certain verses are chosen, painting the gruesome picture of the blood of the slaughtered Canaanites soaking the ground as God looses God's terrible swift sword upon them. Here's where all of this is going. Must there be a winner and a loser, a conqueror and a victim, a hero and a villain? Must we cherry-pick certain verses and stories to paint the image of God as war chief, the chosen and righteous receiving blessing and the rejected and trampled receiving damnation? Is this really what we profess? and confess as Christians? Some would say yes. In fact, those that say yes are shrill and noisy these days, spewing a false winner-takes-all theology and feeding into the popular narrative that God loves winners and hates losers, which is in fact diametrically opposed to who God is. Over and over again, God sides with the disenfranchised, the poor, the vulnerable. The toxic civil religion that claims that God is on the side only of white, wealthy, heterosexual, powerful people and opposed to other races, orientations, identities, ideologies, and religions is not only problematic, it's poisonous and decidedly unchristian. After all, if we're to be brutally honest, how can we condemn World War II Germany's Lebensraum or Putin's atrocious invasion of Ukraine without first acknowledging our own country's bloody manifest destiny, knowing that this church and all of our homes are built on stolen land? How can we claim to be one nation under God while failing to celebrate all people as children of a spectacularly diverse God. How can I demand my rights while stripping you of yours? In order for me to have rights, must you have none? Does my having a voice mean you have no voice? Does my presence mean that you are erased? Must my truth cancel yours? In order for me to fully live, must I kill you? Must it threaten church patriarchy to celebrate an equally strong matriarchy? Must it be so black and white? To insist on black and white, finally, is to embrace hypocrisy. These popular narratives thrive either because they are created by those who will do anything to keep their power or by those who will compromise anything to get power and cherry-picking verses from the Bible only feeds into that. But in the end, God is the God of the powerless as well as the powerful. Because isn't the God of Abram also the God of Sarai and Hagar? Isn't the God of Israel also the God of Canaan? Isn't the God of David also the God of Goliath? Isn't the God of Moses also the God of Pharaoh? If not, then we are implying that there is another God. And yet we confess that there are not two gods but one. We confess that there is one God, creator of all people, all things seen and unseen. The question to ponder today is this. 
In matters of faith, must there be winners and losers? Must life and all that it contains, politics and religion and relationships, must it all depend on heroes and villains? The world says yes, but the Christian must say no. The world demands black and white, but Christians live in the gray, where it's messy, where grace abounds. True, many Christians don't like that because it does not fit the victor's agenda to wipe the other out. But if we look at the entire biblical narrative and God's entire narrative, we discover that my existence does not depend on your obliteration. It is possible that Israel moves into the land of Canaan without full-scale war, it is possible that people fall in love and beliefs are shared and black and white blend and humanity thrives. We don't need to recast and redact biblical narrative to an either-or theology. God does not need our protection. Isn't it possible that I can move into your world and your reality and you into mine without my needing to conquer you or you me? Is there not much to learn from and love about the other? These things need not threaten. In Jesus, all of these things are possible. Is Abram perfect? Because we know he's not. Does God love him because he makes all the right decisions at exactly the right times? Ridiculous. Does God love us because we make all the right decisions at exactly the right time? Absurd. Does God love the Canaanites less than the Israelites? Of course not. Does God love Goliath less than David? No. Or Pharaoh less than Moses? No. Of course not. This is the popular narrative pushing us into a winner-takes-all religion and a scarcity mindset that suggests God somehow doesn't have enough love or grace to go around. If faith depends on any of us following the letter of the law, then we all fail. That's the brutal honesty of it. In our gospel, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. They have a very honest conversation. I feel that's when I most often come to Jesus, truthfully, in my restless dreams or abrupt awakenings, thinking of people that I have failed or mistakes that I have made, harm that I have participated in, words and action that I regret. Omitting Abram's mistakes from our lectionary rotation does not erase his sin. But despite his sin, he is righteous because God's mercy knows no bounds. Sinful humans are righteous simply because God declares it so. God is in loving relationship with us, even when we don't want to be in relationship with God. I'm a mom. I know what it's like to love a little child who's swinging at me, a child who I know would kill me if they had better control of their fine motor skills. I know what it means to love a child, not because they deserve it, but because they're mine. This is what grace is. This is God's narrative. There's great freedom in this. Once we've been liberated from the winner-takes-all popular biblical narrative that God loves and blesses me 
because of my skin color or good looks or heterosexuality or wealth and you are less loved and less blessed because you are poor or gay or have brown skin or call God by another name. Once we reject this false narrative of Christianity, we find astonishing freedom in Christ, freedom for both winners and losers, for heroes and villains, freedom from oppression and freedom from oppressing, freedom from being used as someone's plaything and freedom from using others as my plaything. Freedom from being conquered and freedom from conquering others. Freedom from being crushed and freedom from crushing others. We cannot mistake human popular narrative for God's narrative. While we are tempted to grasp at random verses and incomplete stories that justify our hatred and bloodlust while we sharpen our claws in order to destroy and dominate and conquer, God's whole story pulls us instead towards incomprehensible grace where love from God and relationship with God are defined neither by perfection nor by the need to win but simply by who God is. The God of Abram, the God of Sarai, the God of Israel, and the God of Canaan, the God of me, and the God of you, the God of all. Amen.